Pastors, Nerd Corner, welcome. This is how we're opening. You're all invited in. Jeremiah. Everybody read Jeremiah? It's a tough book to read. It's got like 50-something chapters. It's pretty sad. There's a lot of these things called woes in it. It's these long poetic like curses upon the people of Israel and then curses upon the whole nation. It's, it's, it's a tough part to read. It's not easy. But to, often to get the good news and to see the um, beauty in some of the major and minor prophets is particularly the major prophets there because they're so long and so verbose, is to actually look at the, the, to see the forest instead of looking at the trees, to see the, the structure of the book. Jeremiah, the structure of it goes like this. At the high point of it is chapters 30 through 33. And scholars have called chapters 30 through 33 the book of consolation. Now, what's the context of the book of consolation? You see, the first 29 chapters of Jeremiah is simply account after account, and series after series, 29 chapters, talking about these sordid, sick sins of Israel and what God is going to do about it to, to them and the judgment that he's going to bring into their life and the discipline and the punishment. And then after 29 chapters of it, here at the center of the book of Jeremiah is the book of Consolation. See, in these chapters, God reveals to his, his people, in these four chapters, his final response to their sinfulness. He has communicated his wrath, his discipline, his anger about their sin, how it, it frustrates him, it, it grieves his heart. And yet, in chapters 30-33 is his final response. Expecting judgment, one final boom of wrath, instead in chapters 30-33, he provides comfort. And within these four chapters, perhaps the text that sums it all up is Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 20. And it says this, is Ephraim. Ephraim is God's pet name for Israel. It's like if you're, that's, that's the, that's the, if you, if you see Ephraim in the scriptures, that's what it is. It's God's pet name for Israel. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, that's discipline. As often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. And I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Literally in the Hebrews, what it says there, my heart yearns for him, is uh, it's a double. It says, having mercy, I will have mercy on him. The mercy is doubled up to emphasize, I have mercy upon mercy. I have grace upon grace. I deliver and I re-deliver my people, my sinners, drowning in the sewage of their sin who need rescue. I rescue them. They jump right back in and I rescue them again. My mercy upon mercy. Jeremiah 31.20, my heart yearns, yearns. We're talking about the heart of Christ, the heart of God in this series. These places where it speaks about the deepest longings at the heart of Jesus, the heart of Yahweh. 29 chapters of every sin you can imagine, every failure, every flavor of unfaithfulness that we can order up as seen here. Every depraved act, every idolatry, every rejection of God. And God's response, final response is, my heart yearns to give you mercy. Yearns to give you mercy. As you consider the Father's heart for you, remember that he describes himself as the Father of mercies, that all other mercies flow from him. He multiplies mercies to match and meet 
every need and every sin. My heart yearns for him. The notion of heavenly mercy, man, it can seem so abstract, can't it? But what if mercy came down and became something that we could see, hear, and touch? What if mercy got dressed in flesh? What would mercy look like in Middle Eastern garb? Well, it would look like a carpenter restoring men's and women's dignity and humanity and health and conscience through healings and exorcism and teaching and hugging and forgiving. For the next two weeks, we want to look at the merciful heart of Jesus, the merciful heart of Jesus, and how it is manifested most clearly in the person and work of Christ Jesus. And so we're going to look this morning at Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Here's what God's word says. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named, or called Matthew, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining, reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous, not the righteous, but I came, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This ends the reading of God's word. Praise be to God. I desire mercy. I take pleasure in mercy is what he's saying. I desire it. If you were to put together Jeremiah 31, 20 and Jesus in 9, 13, it would be he has a yearning desire to show mercy. If you were to tap the heartstrings within Jesus, mercy is what would be played. Last week we had a, a, a man come out to our house who was a piano tuner and he opens up our piano and he's tuning it. And what you realize is behind your piano and all those little keys that every time you hit one of those keys, it, it hits a hammer up against strings, essentially, wires that are, that are pulled at different tensions to make different sounds. And what happens is no matter what the hammer of your life does, no matter what amount of which hammers are played, whether it's suffering or sin and all its various different forms, what it plays in the music that comes forth from the deepest part of Jesus' heart is mercy. It is the middle C of his heart. Mercy. The heartstrings of God. Great love fills his heart and rich mercy is what flows out. The merciful heart of God, I want you to see it in two ways, in particular in this text. The merciful heart of God flows out through Jesus in two ways. First is Jesus' friendship with sinners. Matthew is described here as a tax collector, a tax collector. And then there's other people who are known as sinners. Jewish people had, um, bit, had to, there was the tax collectors with these Jewish people amongst the, amongst the Jewish nation, amongst Israel, who had bid themselves out to the Roman government. They are hired to extract taxes from their own people. Rome will actually use these exact taxes that they're going to pull out of the Israelites, out of the Jewish people, and use those taxes to pay for their armies that will occupy and oppress the people of Israel. So here's the situation. 
Tax collectors are people hired by the Romans who will then take that money from the Jewish people in order to fund the very armies that bring oppression into their life. These people are traitors. They're the worst of the worst and the lowest of the low. They were hated by everyone in Israel. That they took this money for their own good and their own grift. But not only that, tax, tax collectors would, in order to make money for themselves, overtax the people in order to make themselves rich. So not only were they traitors to their nation, but then they were stealers. They were robbers off of the people. And so Matthew is a wealthy person. Think of a mob boss who is running a corrupt organization who has made his living by taxing and mistreating his very own people to extract money from them in order to pay Rome for their very own oppression. Jesus says, Matthew, I want you to be one of my followers. What's funny is later on, Jesus is going to call a guy named Simon the Zealot, who's the exact opposite. Simon the Zealot, Simon the Zealot, well, he's like a nationalist. He wants to rise up and break. This sounds familiar. And yet Jesus says, I will bring both of these people into my body and into my small group of people. Matthew is invi- comes uh, to follow Jesus, and so Matthew says, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, and thank you for inviting me into your discipleship. And so he invites Jesus to his house for a meal. Mark and Luke call this, in, in a similar uh, the story they give, the same account, say that there was a great feast. Matthew throws a great banquet, a costly banquet. And then it says, behold, who comes to Matthew's party? Well, the people that Matthew knows. And he can't, he's not allowed. I mean, no one will hang out with him. No one in polite society hangs out with Matthew. So all of his friends are robbers, stealers, tax collectors, and this euphemistic word called stealers, which is simply a a euphemistic word for someone in the sex trade. Prostitutes, pimps, sinners, flagrantly violating and disregarding God's law, openly immoral, sacramentally unclean. These were the people, not only were, they weren't traitors necessarily, but they were seen as the worst kind of sinners. And yet, Jesus says, I'm going to eat with you. I'm going to recline with you. I'm going to hang out with you. A meal signified in the ancient Year East something significant and important. You didn't eat with just anybody. You didn't eat with anybody you didn't consider your friend. To eat with someone was a sign of friendship, a sign of of value, a sign that we are embracing each other. This is not all that different from today, just a heightened experience of a meal with someone else communicating friendship and communicating a connection and togetherness. It's more like, think like how the, the cafeteria tables work in high school, that kind of situation. In other words, Jesus comes eating and drinking with sinners is ancient Middle Eastern language for Jesus is friends with sinners. That's what it means. What does it mean that Jesus could be a friend to sinners? His friendship means his commitment doesn't waver. That's the kind of friend he is. It is not based on our value and worth to him and our passion for him. It is based on his stability as a friend. His friendship means he is safe. We can divulge anything, right? He's friends with sinners. And therefore, when you show up and you're a sinner, he's not shocked by it. Have you ever had this experience where you get to know someone and then you see something in their life and you go, oh man, what was that? That was gross. I never thought that was going on in their life. There's nothing you can tell Jesus where he lurches back, raises his hands to his chest and go, oh my, oh my, I wasn't expecting that in your life. In fact, actually, Jesus would not look, just not look at you with shock. He would actually move closer to you and say, 
you, there's more you need to tell me, isn't there? You've only just begun to tell me about the, the crud that is in you. He is safe. There's nothing we can share that will cause him to raise his eyebrows or distance himself. There is no ceiling on what he will put up with and still be our friend. Right, we all have, a, we all have a, a ceiling that we'll put up with, right? In which we'll go, the calculus of this relationship, it ain't working for me anymore. He plays no such math games with his friendships. And those things are certainly true about Jesus, but I think at its core, what friendship with sinners means is this, is Jesus as a friend of sinners at least means that he enjoys spending time with them. That's what friendship is. That's who you become friends with, people that you enjoy, and vice versa. Jesus being friends with sinners means sinners enjoy being with Jesus. Others hold sinners at arm's length, but Jesus offers Jesus is intriguing to the tax collectors and sinners because they go, this man seems to be offering us a relationship with him that we don't understand. This is intriguing. There is a posture of not just welcome from Jesus, but of arms open, busting out the door, not simply waiting for you to come in and knock, but busting out the door, running out and greeting you in the driveway sort of friendship. The kind of friendship that when he hasn't seen you in a long time, it runs out the door and it's the kind of hug where you rock back and forth that kind of friendship. And not only that, but what is the heart countenance of Jesus when he sees and greets sinners? Is it angry, insulting? <laughs> Have you heard of resting blank face? I have this problem. We'll call it resting angry face. All Henleys have this issue. Cade has had it since he was a little child. We have a picture of Cade in a in a gator outfit with a football kind of tucked, and he's just kind of, he's so fat, he can't even like, I mean, and everything about his whole body is creviced in his eyes, probably because the gators were losing, but it was like this. I have this, this countenance myself, and yet what is the countenance of Jesus towards sinners? You know, there's another account where Jesus interacts with a tax collector, in fact, the chief tax collector. You may have heard of him. His name is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, he was the chief tax collector. He hears Jesus is coming down to town. He has to see him. He hears about the intrigue of who Jesus is. And so, he, and remember, Zacchaeus was short. And so he climbs a tree. And when Jesus sees him up in the tree, he says, he doesn't say, Zacchaeus, I've heard bad things about you. No, what, he, what does he say? Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. And what does it say? Hurry and come down, he says to Zacchaeus. Now, listen. If, you're, if you're, you're a parent in the room and you say the words hurry and come down, what is the tone of those words usually? You better hurry and come down. But that's not, but there's something about the way in which Jesus says hurry and come down that makes Zacchaeus go, what does he do? He goes scurrying home to make dinner and to invite all these people and actually to make plans to give all of his wealth away. Jesus says hurry and a grown man scurries down a tree to go make dinner for Jesus. Understand this, Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus describes us this way. He talks about Christians in verse 17 of Revelation 3. It says this, You are poor, wretched, pitiable, blind, and naked. That's not a Puritan, that's Revelation. And, but then he says this in verse 20, And behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Who is it that he's wanting to eat with? The poor, wretched, pitiable, blind, naked. That's us. 
And that's who he says he wants to come eat with. Why do you think tax collectors and sinners were drawn to Jesus? They enjoyed Jesus. They were welcomed by him. He likes them. And so he pulls us and his liking of them, his enjoyment of them, draws them to him. Have you ever been someone where you're like, there, there's just something about the way they interact with you in which you go, I think, I, I'm not sure, I think they like me. And lo and behold, you find yourself wanting to, you know, like, hang out with them versus other people who are always greeting with you with some sense of like critique or a sense of your failure or holding you at arm's length. And what he is doing at the bottom of welcoming them and being in, willing to be in their presence is he is actually wooing their heart towards him, of making him safe. They are at ease around him. And his desire to spend time with these people draws them in. The holy God that we sang about earlier is somehow comfortable, makes sinners feel comfortable. Here is the promise of the gospel and the message of the whole Bible. In Jesus Christ, we are given a friend who will always enjoy welcome you into his presence. This is a companion whose embrace does not strengthen, does not just strengthen or weaken depending on how clean or unclean your day went, how attractive or revolting you are, how faithful or fickle you are. We how, no matter where we are, he is welcome to have you. And he loves spending time with you. He likes you. He's not forced into loving you. He enjoys it. All our human friendships have a limit to what they can withstand, but his friendship has no limits. And so here's some application I'll just say to this point. For those that are Christians, for those that trust in Jesus, who in trust have come to Jesus where you have experienced his friendship. You get to enjoy it day in and day out. Here's what I would call you to do. Express your friendship with him. You see, what's the best way to enjoy God? What's the best way to enjoy God? To glorify him in obedience. John chapter 15 verse 14 says this. If you are my friends, you will what? You will do what I command. Jesus says the way you express friendship with him is if you trust him enough to do what he asks you to do. Because you've experienced day in and day out that this friend is so welcome, this friend is so kind, this friend is so generous, that even if I fail at doing what he asks me to do, he's still going to welcome me back. And so tomorrow I have the great joy and delight to go try again to obey him. Maybe you're not necessarily a Christian. Maybe you haven't embraced Jesus' friendship. I would just simply say this. He, he stands at the door and knocks what Revelation 3.20 says. He stands at the door and knocks. He says, we, let, let me in. We'll connect. We'll share a meal together. We will be family. We will be friends. What's your job when Jesus knocks? It's to accept the invitation, to open the door. He offers us friendship. And understand this. If you are somebody who is pitiable, what does it say? <laughs> Poor, wretched. These are hard words to embrace about ourselves. What about lonely? What about lonely? It's the epidemic that is worse than the pandemic, is loneliness. And Jesus offers a friendship that actually will get underneath the pain of your loneliness. It doesn't necessarily take the pain of earthly loneliness away, but it does give you someone to walk through that loneliness with. He walks with us every moment. He knows the pain of being betrayed, of being alone, of being forsaken. And he will never betray us. He will never betray you. He will never allow his friendship to cool. And so would you embrace his invitation? Stunning, isn't it? 
the sheer relational of our desire of our God, that out of the overflow of his mercy, that he would befriend sinners. The merciful heart of God for sinners is manifest by Jesus and his friendship, but he has a friendship. It's a friendship. It's like being a friend with Dr. Eric or Dr. Chuck Davis. He's a doctor too, and that's awesome. It comes, it comes with some benefits, not those benefits, healing benefits. Here's the second overflow of God, Jesus' merciful heart. He's friends with sinners, but he's also the healer of sinners. He brings healing in his wings. The fact that Jesus befriends sinners does not mean that he simply turns a blind eye to the sins of his friends. He could not be a good friend and allow us perpetually to continue in our sin. He is not like an uncaring friend who says, well, that's just the way you are, and I'm just going to put up with it. He calls our sins sin. He calls it what it is. He looks at us and he says, you are sick. You have a sickness in your soul. He is not repulsed by our sickness. He is not repelled by our disease. Like any good doctor, though, he is drawn toward our need. And oddly enough, any good doctor, that he, any good doctor, the worse off you are, the more he moves toward you like a magnet. This is why he came, to befriend sinners, and then in that friendship to heal sinners. Now understand this, the only way that he can be a friend to sinners and a physician to the sick is if he is willing, is if he is willing to take on our sickness. The Pharisees are appalled that Jesus would move this close to sinners, isn't he? He comes to the disciples and says, hey, hey, what's the deal here? Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? You see, the belief was that if the clean get around the unclean, it is not the unclean who become clean, but it's the clean who becomes unclean. And in other words, that, hey, if Jesus hangs around tax collectors and sinners, they're going to rub off on him, not him on them. The Pharisees are shocked because Jesus is hanging out with these people who are unclean. They're, they're unclean, not just that they're sinful, but they're, I mean, they're ceremonially unclean. These are people who can't go to church. They can't go to the temple based on Old Testament rules. The tax collectors hang out with Gentiles all the time. The sinners are sexually unclean. And so, therefore, when it comes to church, it says, stay out, stay away, stay away from the temple. Because if you come near these people, you will become unclean as well. And we actually know that the Bible and the, the world works this way, and as does the Bible works this way. The book of Leviticus has all these laws for remaining ceremonially clean. The understanding is that our sin had indeed made us something unclean, something dirty, something defiled before God. It is not merely an issue of guilt. It is an issue of something shameful about us in our uncleanliness. And we understand that if a doctor or nurse comes near a patient, they must do everything they can to keep the sickness away from them. Therefore, what do we have? PPE. <laughs> We've heard a lot about it this year. We do everything we can to keep their sickness off of us. A number of years ago, I read a story from back in when the, the days when AIDS was raging and we still hadn't gotten a handle on it. And it was our emergency room doc who had a, a woman who was rushed into the ER with AIDS. And this woman was hemorrhaging blood everywhere. And like the good doctor, she was quickly worked on to stop the bleeding, to care for this woman. But during the procedure, this woman got the AIDS-infected blood on her. And not only that, but it somehow seemed, it got somehow in her glove. And to her horror that when she went to go wash off, she realized that she had a cut on her finger that had been exposed to this blood to this infected blood. She freaked out, 
And she began washing her hands over and over and over again. She was then rushed to a specific clinic for such things. And for the next 11 months, she took medicine to help her ward off HIV. And yet, when it comes to Jesus, he wears no PPE. Jesus came and said, I will not scrub myself to get your disease off of me. In fact, your disease doesn't scare me at all. No, I have come to actually embrace your sin-riddled, diseased life and to bring it upon myself, and I will take it to the cross. You see, Jesus came to get infected with what we got so that he can then bring healing to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. Understand this, that the law condemns us. The law calls us unclean in our sin. That sin defiles us. This is not an untruth. There is not something here that the Pharisees got wrong in this sense. The law does make us unclean if we break it. Law looks at sinners and says, this must be dealt with. They must be washed clean. This sin must be dealt with. This sin and uncleanness must be washed away if you're going to have any relationship with Yahweh, with God Almighty. And Jesus says, no, I come as a doctor, and I will deal with their sin. I will deal with the law, and I'll wash them clean. Charles Spurgeon, who was one of the great British preachers of the day, gave this little parable in one of the sermons. It's going to be up here because it's a fairly lengthy quote from the sermon. He said this, there is an awful story abroad, he said in this story. A murder has been committed, and the poor wretch who has committed it has cut his own throat. The policeman and surgeon are quickly on the spot. The one, the policeman, comes in the interest of law. The other attends in the interest, the doctor does, in the interest of humanity. Says the police officer, man, you are my prisoner. Says the doctor, my dear fellow, you are my patient. Now he lays his delicate, this is what the doctor does, he lays his delicate hand on the wound, he stops the flow of blood, he applies the soft ointments, he binds it up with dressings, and bending down his ear, he listens to the man's breathing. Taking hold of his hand, he feels for his pulse, gently raising his head, he administers to him the stimulant that he needs, takes him to the hospital, gives the nurses instructions to watch him, orders that he shall be given nutritious diet as he is able to bear it. And then day after day, he visits him. And uses all his skill and all his diligence to heal the man's wounds. Is that the way to deal with criminals? Certainly, it is not the manner in which the police would deal. The, their business is to find out all the traces and evidences of his guilt. But the medical attendant is not concerned with the man as an evildoer, but as a sufferer. So it is with the sinner. But that's because he took care of the law. The policeman still has his, and so Jesus comes and he dies the death that we deserve. He took our uncleanliness upon himself so that he might then bring his healing balm into our life. Jesus has not come to keep himself from being defiled by the world. He has come as a doctor to run full speed into the thick of the sickness and the dying of this world to befriend and to heal. And so what does God do? He takes our sin on himself. What does John say? No greater love than this than one who will lay down his life for his friends. Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. By the wounds of your friend, 
we are healed. The only one who was whole, the only one who didn't have the leprosy of sin, eating him alive, was wounded, was crushed physically in his soul so that we might healing, have healing and life once again. The cross is both the greatest expression of friendship and his most compassionate heart for the sick. This is who he is. This is his mercy on display. He's a friend, and he heals sinners. Now, to close this morning, some closing applications to give you one warning and then some perspective. There is an implicit warning in this text. Jesus came for those who know what? They are sick. He said, I came for the sick, not the righteous. For when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick need the physician. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, I'm not coming for those who have convinced themselves that they are okay. I came for those who felt the sickness of their own souls, who feel regret and feel shame, those who have a longing to get better but don't know how to fix themselves. An old commentator named William Barrett said this, he is the tender surgeon who sets the bones that we know that we have broken with our own sin. We have brought pain and misery upon our lives, and Jesus comes not to lecture us about why we have a broken arm, but he is here to gently set the bone. And he is like any doctor. Understand this. He is like any doctor. And this is important for you to think that you have some sort of unique disease that he cannot heal. His mercy, not only is it new every morning, but it's, it's multi-arrayed. If there's a thousand ways to sin and be corrupted in this world, he has a thousand and one remedies for our sin. He is the perfect diagnostician. He knows how to diagnose our disease and to deal with it perfectly. If your heart is hard, his mercies are tender. If your heart is dead, he has mercy to make it alive again. If you be sick, he has mercy to heal you. If you be sinful, he has mercies to sanctify and cleanse you, no matter what the nature of your fleshly disease is. Jesus came to heal, to forgive, to restore, and to strengthen, and so would you admit that you desperately need him. That you've been to all the other doctors in the world, You've drank all the drink. You've smoked all, this, all the things you can smoke. It's done nothing for your healing for the soul. Would you give him an opportunity? And understand that when he comes to do his healing, it is a healing from the inside out. Jesus said, the Pharisees think they bring you healing. Really, all they do is give you Band-Aids, and you have a wound that is infected underneath that is festering. He called them whitewashed tombs. Jesus is not here simply to deal with our symptoms. He is not here as a plastic surgeon to give you a nice, pretty American life. He is here to do something disruptive in your life, and that might mean cauterizing some nasty stuff in your life. He is here to do soul surgery on hearts that have gone awry. He is here to remove blockages to the soul in our hearts built up upon years and years of feeding on the fat of sin. That's what he came to do. It's a deep, deep, deep work. And therefore, it's going to take a lifetime. It's going to take a lifetime of moving and shaping and reshaping your soul. Jesus says, friendship with me will not simply be a band-aid, but it will be entering into a lifelong relationship with a doctor who will nurse you back to health and cure your very soul. That's the warning. Do you know you need him? And let me ask this. Do you still know you need him? Then I want you to give this one bit of perspective. It says this, go and learn. Go and learn. Verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go and learn. I desire mercy. I desire mercy. Here's the, here's the perspective. Here's the call. If you're a people who have experienced friendship and the healing of Jesus, 
we become a household of people who extend friendship and offer healing. The passage is not saying that God doesn't want our sacrifices or our songs or our sermons. What he is saying is he doesn't want those things primarily. He certainly doesn't want them if they are a charade to cover up the fact that we are unwilling to be merciful to those who are lonely in this world. What he wants is for our hearts to be hearts of mercy. That's what happens when your soul gets healed. It takes the shape of mercy like his. It's about loving and inviting the sinner and the sick into friendship and healing. I love this. There's this great story about Jack Miller, who is actually the father of uh, one of the guys, the books I've been basing this series on. Paul Miller, his father, Jack Miller, is a well-known evangelist to all over the world. And at one time, he was in a London pub, and he was sitting next to this guy who was a complete and utter drunk. But Jack ta- talks to this guy about Jesus, and it's just kind of just persistently keeping up a conversation with this guy. And over time, though, this guy becomes rather agitated. And eventually, he storms out of the pub angry, and he's drunk. He doesn't have anywhere else to go. And so he stumbles across the road to a park directly across the street from the pub and lays down in the grass spread eagle. Well, Jack Miller had friends who were there with him, and they were hanging out there still at the pub. And then the next thing they know, they suddenly realized he wasn't there. He had walked out of the pub following this man, walked across the street, And when they found him, Jack Miller was spread eagle laying next to the man, telling him about Jesus. (laughs) Laying on the ground, talking to a drunk about Jesus. He said, man, I'm going to go sit with the drunks in the grass. Rick Ortiz tells a story about an internship he had when he was a young man living in the hills of West Virginia. He lived with the pastor's family. The pastor's name was wife, wife's name was Beth, and she was saintly, he said. Every night, she would make dinner for a lady named Alice Clevenger. Alice Clevenger. He said, this doesn't sound that crazy, but Alice Clevenger was a woman who had walked into the church one night during choir practice, a choir practice that this pastor's wife, Beth, was leading. And Alice Clevenger walked up onto the, onto the stage in front of the whole choir, interrupted the choir practice, and declared that everyone, the pastors to everyone, that this pastor's wife was a witch. And she brought her shotgun with her and said that she was going to kill Beth. And this is the woman that Beth made dinner for every night, crazy Alice Clevenger. Because God's people make friends with those who need to be befriended. The going and learning process, though, understand this. The go and learn mercy. Go and learn. That means you get it to some degree now. But my guess in 20 years, if you're walking with Jesus, you will have learned mercy more deeply. You will have learned mercy more deeply. You see, the the growing and learning process of becoming more merciful goes hand in hand with learning the depths of your need for a healing friend. The thing that has improved my parenting, and perhaps, well, not the externals of my pastoring, but at least shaped my pastoral heart more deeply the thing that has shaped me most over the last 10 to 15 years is just coming to terms even more deeply with my own personal need for mercy. The mercy of the Lord to me day in and day out, confessing and being amazed once again, has made me a better husband, a better father, and sometimes even a better friend. But it means going and learning. That means that first part of daily acknowledging that you came from the sick and for the sinner, and that still includes me. So let's invite Jesus to come do his healing work in us this morning in his mercy. Lord Jesus, I pray 
I pray that where we um, discover something nasty, (laughs) some rot of our soul that we were like, oh my, oh my, I didn't realize that's there. I pray that the inclination of our heart would be to run to you because we know the heart of our friend. That the first person we call may not even necessarily be our spouse or our closest earthly friend, but Lord, would we call upon you when we realize something devastating about ourselves? And would you extend us mercy, Lord? And Lord, I pray that you would um, display through us as a people that we would be a people who love the lonely, that we befriend the lost as an evidence of the fact of how deeply we are experiencing mercy. Would you do that in this place? Come and befriend us, Lord. Extend your healing hand. And then allow us to do the same. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.